0: Grace, mercy, and peace be yours from God, our Father, and the risen Lord Jesus Christ. Our text this morning for this third Sunday of Easter is from the Gospel reading, St. Luke, the 24th chapter. These words, Luke writes, As they were talking, they, those who were on the road to Emmaus, Jesus himself stood among them, the disciples that were there gathered, and and said to them, Peace to you. But they were startled and frightened and, and thought that they saw a spirit. And he said to them, Why are you troubled? And why do doubts arise in your heart? See my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. And they, all the disciples, still disbelieved for joy. This is our text, dear friends, in our Lord Jesus Christ. By now, I think it's safe to say that many of you know the name of Susan Boyle. She's the literal overnight sensation who's seemingly unlikely... Song has sounded into homes all over the world. I say unlikely song because as this middle-aged and wholly unassuming, and even as some have written of her painfully ordinary British spinster from West Lothian, Scotland, made her way a few days ago onto uh, onto the stage of the televised grassroots talent show called Britain's Got Talent. She certainly didn't bear the look or the walk of anyone who ever could be a star. And when this 47-year-old contestant confidently announced that one day she'd like to sing professionally, there were chuckles. And when she announced that this night, on this talent competition, she'd, she'd be singing the operatic, and nonetheless, the operatic, I Dream a Dream from Les Miserables, The looks on the faces and in the smirks of the audience, members and the judges, they said it all. They said, unlikely, Miss Boyle, unlikely. And then she sang. And did she sing? And the studio audience, who was moved as one wrote in a matter of minutes through all the the gamut of emotions, guilt and shame, vindication and hope, it all collectively rose to its feet and sustained the standing ovation throughout the entirety of her song. And one of the judges later remarked she had the voice of an angel. And the proof, the proof was right there in that beautiful tone that couldn't be denied. Right there, the, in the basement bottom expectations and the doubts that rose in those audience members and in the judges too, as they initially assessed this songbook by its cover, they were undeniably unfounded. Susan Boyle's confidence was not wrong. No doubts and expectations were. The proof was right there. Oh, the proof for the skeptical Easter Eve disciples, apostles, was right there too. They saw it. They heard it with their own ears. they handled it. The undeniable proof was there, there in his hands. And in his feet, proof was in the prints, the nail prints. It is I myself, not another. Look, see, identifying marks. Touch me, and behold, you can't shake hands with a ghost. That's about what Jesus said when he said to them, You see, a spirit has not flesh and bone, as you see I have. And when he'd said this, he showed them his hands, Luke writes, and his feet. Proof positive. Proof positive. And then Luke says that Jesus asked for something to eat. They gave him a fish fillet. And he did that to prove that he was he, because he knew that, as Luke writes, they still disbelieved for joy. That's an odd statement, that they disbelieved for joy. How is that possible? It's a paradox, isn't it? It's an oxymoron. It's a contradiction in terms, disbelieving for joy. How could that be? Well, the marvel of it all couldn't be comprehended. And the human mind, just like a computer, can't process something so easily. After all, there was Jesus. Now he was dead, and undeniably so. But he's standing right here, and undeniably so. And earlier, Peter and John, they went to the tomb earlier that very day. They went to the tomb and saw that Jesus wasn't there, just like the women had told them. And now Peter comes back to us later in the day and says that he saw, he's seen the risen Lord. And so do the women come back saying the same thing. And two of our brothers, even, who were on the road to Emmaus, now come back and and report to us that they've seen the risen Lord. He was walking and talking with them. And he broke that new, this new sacramental bread with them, and now he, he, he disappears from their midst and appears in our midst. He was lifeless, and that's undeniable. And yet here he is, full of life, talking and breathing and eating our fish. That's information overload. It's hard to compute. It seems true, and how great a joy it would be if it were true, but it seems almost too good to be true. And that's disbelieving for joy. Disbelieving for joy when something's just too great, it would seem to be true. It's like an uncertain ember, flickering between the glow of joy that it could be true and the darker, hope-snuffing doubts that suggest that just maybe, just rationally, it all might be too good to be true. That's disbelieving for joy. Do we? Do you? Perhaps you do. But don't be too quick to say that you don't. Now maybe the physical fact of the resurrection gives you no pause after the eyewitness accounts that faith faithfully and fully confirm it, that they're touching his hands and his feet and his side, his eating. Fish, maybe you're much more ready given these, and by grace, of course. Much more ready like John to believe than doubt like Thomas. Perhaps you don't doubt the fact, the physical fact of Christ's resurrection, nor should you. But do you perhaps doubt the effect of Christ's resurrection? The effect that it has for you and in your life. Because, you see, one disbelieves for joy. He thinks it all too good to be true. For example, when he won't forgive himself for sins that God has already forgiven. And maybe you know that well. There are certainly and undeniably those things that each of us has done or left undone that don't so easily leave us alone. They certainly mark our minds, and the marks of them, they'll mark our lives. And daily the marks remind us so that every time we, like Peter, would hear again that familiar cock crow, we're painfully reminded of what's been done. And even though we know Scripture says that the resurrection is proof positive that Christ's atoning death on the cross is enough, put us right with God, to reconcile us with God, and how great a thing that would be, still the ember flickers. It flickers because the thing that's done seems to you in your mind mightier than God's justifying decree. And the might of it in your mind muscles, as it were, the stone back in front of the tomb. That's disbelieving for joy. Disbelieving for joy, and it's not... Just as we noted, when remorse overrides the resurrection, when one, as we said, determines that God wouldn't and shouldn't be reconciled to me because of what I've done. But one also disbelieves for joy. He thinks it all too good to be true when one banks his faith on the emotion of joy. Because you see, when he does that, banks his faith on the feelings of joy, when he does that in times of hardship, in times of waning joy, and in these economically challenging times in our cultural context, we know those waning joys. When he sets his, in the, the security of his faith on the feelings of joy, in these times one then determines that God couldn't be pleased with me or things in my life wouldn't be as they are right now, or that he must have forgotten about me or that he no longer walks with me. Maybe we should call it disbelieving for a waning joy. And sadly, many do. They grow troubled. And doubts arise as joys wane because assurances are rested on the subjective. And the fleeting things that that can be manipulated and worn down. Like the feelings of joy. Instead of on an objective outside of yourself. And rock solid resurrection reason for joy. And... It's even true, too, that sometimes amid a life of contented Christian joy, that the ember can begin to flicker merely because of the simplicity of the Christian message that Jesus Christ, God's son, died for your redemption and rose in validation of it. Seems too simple. And you see the, the devil who works tirelessly among us in the world who works Upon us and all around us, in our own sinful flesh within us, constantly working to snuff out trust in Christ. They love to play on mankind's inborn sinful determination that he's got to do something, he's got to contribute something, at least in part toward his salvation. We're born to say there's no free lunch. So I've got to do something. I've got to lead a better life. I've got to show it in that way. I've got to, I've got to maintain a zeal for the faith. And these become our marks of joy and peace but think how dangerous that is though and how disbelieving the result can be as for instance one well along in his years is moved maybe due to health concerns or just by the passage of time more carefully more attentively to contemplate life after this one and he becomes increasingly convinced that there's got to be more than the free gift of salvation in god How it would seem that the long-held joy in God's free grace would be a joy too good to be true. It would seem too simple as it is. That's sadly disbelieving for joy. Friends, for those who question the physical fact of Christ's resurrection, he say to you through the eyewitnesses, what he said to them, see my hands and my feet, it's undeniably I myself. But for those who doubt the effect of his resurrection for you and for your unforgettable yesterday and your rugged today and your promised tomorrow. Well, then Jesus says to you what he through scripture has said to thousands of, upon millions of those just like you before. You say, why do doubts arise in your hearts? Behold my hands and my feet. Behold the nail prints. Do you think, he says, do you think that all the wrong your hands have done could ever outdo or overcome or outfurnish what these my hands have won? Behold my hands. Do you think, he says, that when life's joys wane and its rugged path leaves your traveling feet tired, do you think that that means I'm not there with you? Do you think there's any place I wouldn't go with you and for you? Behold my nail-pierced feet and where they've gone for you. Do you think, he says, that your promised heaven is too good to be true because it costs too little? Then he'd say, dear redeemed one, take a good look at these hands and these feet of mine and the holes left by the nails that pierced them through when I was on the cross for you. Behold my hands and my feet and recall just what it cost me. To secure for you a redemption that costs you nothing but guarantees you everything. And so peace be to you. And it's no wonder then that he says peace be to you. Peace be to you. Let there be no doubts. For the proof, the proof is in the prince. In my hands and in my side. In my feet. I'm reminded of other prince I once saw. Prince of a different sort. Several years ago, touring with my wife and then two sons, Mission San Juan Batista, miles just south of of here, not so many miles away, near Hollister, we were touring the Mission, Mission San Juan Batista, We, we came into the nave of the Mission Chapel, and inside we saw on the old adobe tiled floor, we saw the paw prints that an animal had left behind. These prints though, they weren't going anywhere. Near 200 years old, they were engraved, if you will, right there into the floor. You could put your finger in them and feel the the ridges and and feel the the unevenness of the floor. You see, apparently as the freshly made soft adobe clay tiles were still drying and hardening out in the sun, some four-footed culprit ran across these particular tiles that weren't discarded, but that were placed as is right there in the chapel floor. And so there they were, indelible prints that you could feel and touch. Indelible prints not worn away by time. It's striking then to look up and to turn and see in that same room a crucifix. Christ crucified upon it with prints in his hands and marks in his feet. Nail prints far more indelible and far more meaningful and far more intentionally made than those trivial prints of any anonymous creature. In the fullness, friends, and the fullness of all time, can't sweep away and can't wear away and can't polish away what he did for all time for you once upon his cross. And so you heard John. I witnessed John. Last week in the epistle reading, declare to you of the risen Christ that which we have heard, he says, and which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and our hands have handled, we declare to you. And then he adds this, and these things we write to you so that our joy, so that your joy may be full. So that your joy may be full. That your joy may not flicker in disbelief like an ember unsure, but a truly risen Christ and a truly effective resurrection declared to you so that your joy may be full. Each time you enter this place, this chapel, if you will, each time you enter this place, you can recall the fullness of John's joy when you see that life-sized image in the rear of of our own nave. The life-sized image of your risen Lord and that come unto me window. Beleaguered beleaguered, and, and wearied by the world and sin. You come and you behold the image of him. Extending his arms. And note it well with ruby nail marked hands. Opening his hands to you in welcome. And each time you leave this place. And out into the world with the promise of his peace. You walk past the same image. Hands pierced and departing, perhaps you'll recall what he once said to you in scripture. He said, I will not forget you. See, he says, I have inscribed you on the palms of my hands. And so come in full joy and go in peace. The proof that you can is in those prints.